Well, good morning. As uh, Craig was praying um, for uh, for our nation and uh, reflecting on the floods and the bushfires and the drought, there's no doubt that this season has been a relentless uh, summer, hasn't it? With extreme conditions for us. Those bushfires, um, the floods, on top of uh, drought over all these years, and over our over the images of our screens, over our news services, we've seen so many graphic images of that. Um, of, of all those uh, occurrences. And one of the images that captivated the news service was actually my cousin's um, children. Uh, my cousins uh, were they camped down on uh, Lake Conjola on the lake and a friend's property down there right on the banks of the shore. And they'd been told that they knew the fire was there. Uh, but with a sudden wind change in the space of 10 minutes, it went from being a, a happy place around the... Uh, around that campsite to them all sitting in a boat, all 11 of them, in a boat out in Lake Conjola, watching as their, their cars were incinerated in the inferno, as their caravans went up, as the jetty on which they were standing went up, and here they were in this boat. And uh, with nothing else on their, except the clothes on their back. And it's um, images that have, went, uh, have gone viral right around the world. And I spoke to my cousin a couple of weeks ago and he said uh, even the news services from the United Kingdom and from, uh, from France have been tracking them down to, to have a story on what happened. Changed in an instant. And here they were watching all that they had enjoyed uh, go up. Uh, quite an amazing experience. Um, and they're thanking their heroes. A, a fellow that himself had watched his own house go up just uh, three properties further down along the lake. He hopped into a boat with his son and their dog and he saw the despair of, of my cousin's um, uh, kids and, uh, and their kids and he yelled to them, get in. They didn't even have time to jump in from the jetty. They just had to throw the kids off the jetty into this boat and escape. They are thanking God for that. Now, if you wanted to do a Google search on that, you'll see the report on that. Uh, Hope 103 ran about a 10-minute interview. Uh, with my uh, my cousin's uh, son about that. Uh, just type in Lake Conjola and Flaxman and you'll get that. Um, that's, uh, that's my cousin's name. Um, and so it was an amazing experience for them. They were very fortunate. Very fortunate. And yet we know others haven't been so fortunate. The death toll out of the fires and now and now number about 30. And then we've got the, the graphic images of those poor people going back into complete townships that have been destroyed, places like Kabarga. And as people walk around the ruins of their own homes, nothing left. Nothing left. Everything that they owned in this world gone. It reminds us how quickly those things that we hold dear can be taken away. But then we look at the devastation on the faces of these people that are now having to rebuild Nothing there, having to start from scratch, and now it would seem having to, to fight an endless bureaucratic process even to get their hands on some of the money that has been donated through the bushfire appeals. It's a long way back, isn't it? Yeah, have you ever grieved when you've seen ruins, when you've looked around and you've seen the devastation all around you? I must admit that I sat there looking at those images and I thought, Lord, I'm going to trust in you, but how would I rebuild in a situation like that? Even with my faith in you. How do people get on when they don't have a faith in you? To start from the ashes, to start from the rubble, rebuilding their lives. 
Nehemiah was a man that got word of what was happening a thousand miles away. He didn't have the benefit of all the news services and the social media and all the GoFundMe pages that we see in this day and age. What happened to Nehemiah was he simply got news of people that had come from a place a thousand miles away that basically said to him, the walls are broken down and the people are in despair. And what does Nehemiah do? He doesn't throw his hands up in the air and say, well, okay, what can I do? I'm here. He doesn't actually uh, say someone else should do something about that. Nehemiah gives us a model to follow. Straight away he starts to go to the Lord and ask about what he can do and he finds himself involved in the process. And what I find is that so often when I go praying to the Lord about different things in life, God will lay something on my heart to be part of the solution if that's possible. God wants to change my heart and refine me and, and engage me in the process of which he is engaged. So how did this all come about? Well, without going over everything that we did last week, you remember that the Jewish people found themselves in exile. That was prophesied. There were people who disobeyed God and the prophecy was from God through Jeremiah. You disobey me, you're going to spend time in exile. 70 years in Babylon. And this is when um, Nehemiah was, when the word came to him. So we know that, that uh, Jerusalem was in ruins, uh, the temple had been destroyed, and people had been carried off into captivity. They'd spent 70 years there. And then last week we heard that they came back, their time for exile had finished, and God moved in the heart of Cyrus, a pagan king, to announce that they could go back. And so they came back in three distinct ways. Zerubbabel led the first lot back, so Zerubbabel went back and he built the temple, and that's what we looked at last week. Eighty years after Zerubbabel, the next wave came back with Ezra, and then another 13 years after Ezra came Nehemiah. And that's where we pick up the story today. Now, verse 3 says, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and they're in great trouble and disgrace. You see, it wasn't just the walls that captured um, the heart of Nehemiah. It was the fact that there were people there they were in trouble and they were in disgrace. Why would they be in disgrace? We'll unpack that a little later. But this account was written two and a half thousand years ago. It's the account of something that happened at least two and a half thousand years ago. But it is so relevant to us today. So he was a man that had a heart broken and ready to respond. And God wants to break our heart by the things that break his heart. And so what is a process that we can work through today? Well, the first one is to have a clear understanding of the problem. I don't know what issues that you're particularly facing in your, in your life right now, but part of the solution is to have a clear understanding of the problem. And the same is true for us as a church. When I went through um, in another a lifetime uh, ago and did my uh, business studies at university and stayed in there in uh, strategic business making and problem solving, you know, it was said that 50% of solving the problem is understanding what the problem is. Having a clear definition of what it is you're trying to address. As soon as you do that, you're halfway towards solving the problem. Well, Einstein put it a little bit more um, succinctly, and his maths was a little bit... Well, I think he's all right as a mathematician, wasn't he? Uh, if I were given one hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute resolving it. So in other words, Einstein was saying... I'd spend 98.4% of my time defining what the problem is, and once I'd done that, 
it'd be a lot easier to find that the two were solve the problem. And so Nehemiah knew that a city without a wall was nothing more than a group of people that were waiting to be attacked and even killed. A city without a wall meant that people were constantly in danger, not just from um, human enemy, but from uh, any wild animals that might wander in. And the walls were also an ongoing testimony against the people of Jerusalem. It showed what they'd suffered as a nation, the humiliation that they'd suffered as a nation. So Nehemiah knew the problem, and he understood the problem by asking questions. So verse 2 tells us that Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. He asked questions. He wanted to get to the bottom of the issue. What is going on? What is going on? He didn't have uh, the internet to do all his research, didn't have anything like that, so the best place he could go was people who had been eyewitnesses accounts, eyewitness accounts of what had happened. And likewise for us, we need to understand the real issue. There are too many examples in our lives of people are offering uninformed advice. There are too many um, examples in the aid and development world of uh, Aid organisations giving aid, um, giving people something that they didn't ask for and didn't need, and then wondering why people didn't use it. Do we have a clear understanding of what the problem is? Am I addressing in my life the symptoms rather than the cause? What do I count and consider to be an issue for me today? How am I going about addressing that? Is this really the issue itself? Or am I dealing with a symptom of a deeper cause? And then Nehemiah had a compassionate heart. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He wept because the city that was meant to be a light to the nations had become an international joke. It was a laughing stock. Nehemiah knew how to weep with those that wept. And he knew how to weep over the failure of God's people. And although he held a high position in the king's court a thousand miles away, he wasn't alienated from what was going on. His heart wasn't cold. Would have been easy to say, well, this is happening a long way, a long, a long way away. I'm sure someone will step up back there. He couldn't cut himself off. Even though he was in a privileged position, his heart was engaged with the problem. He wasn't disengaged by what was happening to his people. And throughout human history, we see account after account of the way God has moved in the hearts of people to make a difference. And it all starts with a heart that is soft, a heart that is compassionate, a heart that wants to make a difference. See, broken walls were bad enough, but it was the depressed people in this city that he was more worried about. The people were in great distress. And we could go on with stories of people like William Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury and Mother Teresa and a thousand other people throughout, uh, even throughout our generation whose hearts have been moved with compassion to make a difference. And history was changed because of them. What is it that moves your heart of compassion? What is it that drives you? What is it that you want to see different in our world? 
How do you think you can make that difference? I love the quote from Bob Pierce, the founder of both our World Vision and Samaritan Purse, who says, I want my heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And that's a good place for our prayers to start. Lord, what is it that breaks your heart? I want my heart to be broken by those same things. People who are in despair, people who desperately need help, people that I can go and stand alongside. We live in a world of so much need. We see that physical need all around us, um, particularly in these times of flood and, and bushfire. But all around our district are people that also have a need. Many of them don't understand what that need is. But it's a need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a need of finding fulfilment through the love of Jesus, finding God's plan and purpose for them. Many of them, as I said, don't know it. And, and unfortunately, they're trying to, to treat a symptom for their unhappiness, trying to treat a symptom for loneliness, rather than trying to come and find someone who can cure the cause of that. So how can you be engaged? There are opportunities in our church, um, in, in some of our what we'll call frontline ministries, like our playtime, so to come and to be someone that makes friends with the not-yet-Christian mums there, uh, to do the same in our men's shed, um, the same in our Chicago, in our sports centre, to come and to stand with people and to just to try and build a relationship with people. What is it that God is stirring your heart about? And then Nehemiah gave us a model of going to God first. He said, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's immediate reaction to the news back in Jerusalem was to go to God. It was immediate and it was spontaneous and he prayed for several days and several nights trying to understand God's heart and how he could be engaged. So what's your first reaction and my first reaction? Too often mine is a spontaneous, okay, who was responsible for that? <laughs> what needs to be done? Let's get on and fix it. And I've had to grow in my understanding that my response, my first response, might not necessarily be the right one. He didn't approach our prayer as a last this effort, you know, like a lot of us blokes um, approach the, um, the assembly of a, an Ikea thing in a flat pack. You know, if all else fails, read the instructions. It wasn't like, if all else fails in life, well, what else have we got to do but pray? Nehemiah's model was, I go to God first. I go to God first. So a personal check for us, what's my prayer life like? Is God my first port of call? I've got to confess I've had to grow a lot in my prayer life over the years. A lot in my prayer life. And I can look back and I can see that development of trusting God and of recognising that it wasn't my might and it wasn't my power but it was God's spirit that was going to do the work. That's not to say I didn't have to be engaged. I still needed to apply myself. Still needed to give myself 100% to the cause, to work my tail off, so to speak, but recognising that God was the one that was going to determine the success or not. I wasn't going to do that. And as a church, we're a church who's believing in the power of prayer, but we're also a church that recognises a greater need to pray. And over the coming weeks, we'll be having opportunities for us to do that. We have people willing to share your burdens now in the room just behind the first room, behind the curtain. 
Um, if you've got an issue that even comes up while you're sitting here, you're free to go around and to, to join our prayer team there. After the service down the back, there'll be others that would count it a privilege to pray alongside you, as would someone perhaps sitting next to you in the row. Grab hold of these opportunities. And then Nehemiah also acknowledged that he was part of the problem. We see so much humility and so much honesty in this journey of Nehemiah. And he prays in uh, verses 4 to 11. We can't help but be caught up with the intensity of his prayer and just the depth of his confession. He makes no excuses. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. And so right at the start, he includes himself in the problem. And he went through the sad record of Israel's disobedience, Israel's neglect of God. He didn't excuse himself, didn't exempt himself. He wasn't saying something like, oh, Lord, you know how hard it is to work with all these people who just continue to ignore you. You know, I've got a heart for you, but look who I'm working with. You've got to be kidding wasn't like that at all. He didn't take on that very pious attitude that we see Jesus refer to in the, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like that man there, Lord. It was an acknowledgement of his part of the problem. And it's a lesson for us in our prayer about difficult relationships, difficult situations in life. Perhaps that's in our home. Perhaps in our relationship with our friends that we need to come before God in prayer and in humility and in honesty, in honesty. Basically pray something like this, Father, I confess my own sin before you. I can't live up to my own standard, let alone yours. Please forgive me. Please forgive me, Lord. Fill me anew with your spirit and live your life through me. Lord, I can't change the hearts of others, but you can. And as you change my heart, I pray that you will change their heart as well. So together we can hear from you. We can be guided from you. It's a wonderful model of his prayer about coming to God with that humility and honesty. So check for us today. Do I take responsibility for my actions? Am I asking God to keep growing me? Or am I continuing to look at the faults of others and ask that God would change them? A bit about the beam and the speck. What am I doing with my prayer life? And then finally, Nehemiah thanked God for his provision and then was able to move forward. Nehemiah knew what God had promised. If Israel rebelled and disobeyed God, they would be destroyed. And Nehemiah knew that Israel were experiencing what they were experiencing at the time, that they were in the state they were in because they disobeyed God. But on the other side of the coin, Nehemiah also grabbed hold of that promise that God made. And so he actually recounts the promise that God had made to Moses. And he prays that back to the Lord. And he said, remember the instruction, Lord, that you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and then bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Who's this man? Well, we'll hear from that uh, next week, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah claimed the promise that God had for his people. How about us? Are we taking hold of the promise that God has for us? Call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you. That's God's promise. We spoke last week of all those different aspects of promises that, that God had, had, uh, had given us that we can take hold of. God brings tough times into our lives so often to bring us back to himself. But not just to bring us back to himself, to give us a right perspective of this world in which we live. Craig prayed before that we live in a world of sin. We do. We live in a broken world. It's not always going to be like that. Jesus is coming again to make all things new. But we experience a world of a lot of pain. And that pain can bring us back to understand where God is right in the midst of that situation. And that's why this account of the rebuilding of the wall is such a fantastic account of hope for people who are experiencing brokenness. People who are at the end of their rope. People for whom the bottom of life has dropped out. Like some of us here today, actually, like all of us here today, without Jesus. I don't know what your situation of life is now. But I urge you to thank God for his promise and to take hold of his provision through Jesus Christ and the fact that he wants to journey with us. This passage of Nehemiah tells us that there is always hope. We have a God who loves us even when we mess things up, a God who cares about us even when our own experiences are the result so much of our own failings, a God who simply wants us to come back and to confess our sin and to take hold of his promise. And that's a truly amazing thing about the grace of God. He has us in his hands like that old song. He has the whole world in his hands. God has us in his hands. And Isaiah says this, See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I find that a fascinating passage of Scripture. Some of our walls are broken down. Some of our lives need to be rebuilt. But God has us, both individually and as a church, in the palm of his hand. Our walls are right there. They're ever before him. And God is faithful to his promise. So what aspect of your life, what aspect of our church life together are you taking hold of from that account of Nehemiah today? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and thank you that an account of a man, a godly man that lived two and a half years, a thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago can be so relevant to, to us and where we are today. There's so much we admire about the life of Nehemiah. man who wanted to make a difference and as we'll go over these coming weeks, a man um, who seemed to overcome enormous obstacles to see your promise fulfilled. He's a man who prayed, but he's a man who committed himself to a task. Not content to leave it to others. Not worried about the investment of his time or his energy. 
able to strategize and to think of what needed to be done next. And Father, we thank you for him and for the model of his life to us. But Father, we want to pray for each other. Father, we ask uh, even for ourselves that today, whatever situation we are facing, that Lord, we would take hope that you have us in the palm of your hands and that our walls, the construction, the fabric of our lives are always before you. And we praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.